we've been looking at Advent, especially through the lens of these people who we read about in the Gospels, whose lives are very much outcast existence. And what we saw last week was a woman who had the issue of blood. And we had seen what her life had been like, how she was a pariah in, in her community because of her infirmity. And I don't know about you, but the video that we saw last week, at the very end of last week's message, it did not leave my heart all week long. Because there is, there is just something about that last scene in that video that we saw where, where she knows that her 12 years of suffering now are a thing of the past. And now she is standing there looking face to face with Jesus. Had to have been so disorienting for her. A lot is going on here all at once. And yet, there's that, that moment at the very end, as we saw last week, where, where eventually Jesus has to turn and, and walk away so that he can raise a girl from the dead. And I just love that scene where this woman is standing there in the very back of this crowd, almost frozen in her footsteps in shock and in awe, as if this is the, the start of my life right now. This is a brand new beginning in my life, and my life will never be the same ever again. And I watched this eight times last week, eight times. And every single time that I watched it, I just could not help but, but weep in gratitude. And that's because, yes, this is her story, but this is also my story, and it's your story. Just remembering that moment when we came up from, from those waters of baptism, knowing that, that we were brand new creations and that, that everything that we had done in the past, it was in the past. It was forgiven through the blood of Jesus. And there were times last week where, where I was very much in a temptation that I wanted to sin in that moment. And yet, thankfully, my mind for whatever reason, it went back to, to this very otherworldly moment for this woman. And then in my mind, the only thing in my mind is, no, 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 no. I never want to, to mentally leave this moment in my life where it's just you and Jesus and you are looking intently into the eyes of Jesus Christ. That, that changes the way that we live. And yet as for who we will see this week in our series, Advent for the Poor, it's a very unusual case that we read about. In fact, this is something that, that we don't speak about nearly enough in the scriptures. Because it's about a time when Jesus spit in a man's face. I mean, right in his face. And there were all these people who were standing there, excitedly watching to see what Jesus was going to do hoping that he would come to some kind of a response. And before anybody knew of anything about it, Jesus spit in this guy's face. But when Jesus spit in this man's face, this was not an altercation that had spiraled out of control in the streets. This was not some kind of a situation that had mushroomed out of control. This was not an enemy of Jesus's who managed to push all of the right buttons that caused Jesus to lash out and then spit in his face. 
But rather, what we're going to see in the text is that when Jesus looks in this man's face and he spits right in it, this was by far the most life-changing moment that this man would ever experience. And it's one of the most unsung moments that we, we read about in the Gospel books. Because most significant of all, the man who Jesus spits in his face, he is disabled on top of that. And we read about him in Mark chapter 8. In Mark the 8th chapter, starting in verse 22, and I'll try to get this on the screen. Um, it says in Mark chapter 8, if you have your Bibles, starting in verse 22, it says that they came to Bethsaida, and they brought a blind man to Jesus and implored him to touch him. Taking the blind man by the hand, he brought him out of the village, and after spitting on his eyes and laying his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? It continues and it says that he looked up at Jesus and he said, I see men, for I see them like trees moving around. Then again, he laid his hands on his eyes and he looked intently and he was restored. And then he began to see everything in a clear way. And so by every indication here, it seems like this is a man who once was able to actually see, but, but somewhere along the way, he has since gone blind. And he encounters Jesus as he's blind. And it's interesting for anybody who, who we read about, because we read about all kinds of people, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, who had been blind, right? And so the Israelites had a very complex relationship with anybody who was blind. Because in one case, if you see a blind person in this time, you would have compassion on them. How we read in the Law of Moses that you shall not curse a deaf man. You shall not place a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall revere your God. Notice how a component of revering and honoring God with their lives is not cursing those who are deaf and is not placing a stumbling block before those who are blind. This is very, very important to God. And elsewhere also, as we read in the Law of Moses, cursed is he who misleads a blind person on the road. And then all the people in the house of Israel are to say, Amen to this, let it be so. This is something that, that we will never, ever do, is what the philosophy is here. And so in one sense, they were to show compassion for anybody who's blind. But in another sense, being blind is just, another, is just another stigma of this time. And as far as I can tell, unless I'm wrong, it seems to go back all the way to at Sodom and Gomorrah. As all of those men at Sodom and Gomorrah are surrounding a house where these two, two men are, or two angels are, and they make what their demands were, as we all know what those demands were, just how dark and how corrupt their um, hearts were. And the way that God neutralizes this is he strikes all of these guys blind. And so it seems like after this, as a result of that act, when we reach the gospel books, it's almost this, 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 this universal opinion among the Jews that if you are righteous, if you are living a, a, a life that is pleasing to God, God is going to, to make you flourish. He's going to bless you. And yet the other side of that is that any calamity that, that will befall somebody or a nation, 
Anything that, that is a deformity in another person like this, any kind of adversity in a person, they must have done something, I mean, completely unspeakable. And so, who we've seen so far in this series, Matthew chapter 8, we began with, with the untouchable leper. Last week, we had seen the woman with the issue of blood. This week, we see a man who has blindness in his eyes. And I guarantee you, everywhere that these people go, they are, they are looked upon as, what did you do? You are an evil, impure, wicked person who got exactly what was coming to you. And you have sin in you. And I don't want your sin making its way into me. And so I'm going to isolate myself from you. And really, it's a way of thought that remains in this world even until this day. I've spoken before about my best friend, Troy, who um, had died in October. Troy lived a very, very sad life. Um, he was molested as a kid. He saw his mother drop dead in his arms of a heart attack. And just when he finds a wife, and he's happy for really the first time in his life, she dies three years after that of cancer. And I was sitting in, in a Bible study with him just maybe two, three years ago. And there was a man in that church, unfortunately, who, who, who looked him right in the eye and said, Troy, the reason why... CJ died is because she just never loved God. She never was a true Christian because if she was a true Christian, God never would have allowed her to have cancer and die. Let me tell you, that is the wrong thing to say to a person who has endured that much pain. And he left that building that night and I never saw him ever return. And yet, Ironically, in that very same class, at the time, I had a severe speech impediment. I mean, I couldn't even say my own name when I met somebody. I, and I couldn't say three words without stammering incomprehensibly at that time. He looked at me and said, David, the reason why you can't speak is because you got the devil in you. You are harboring Satan inside of you, and you never trusted in Jesus in the first place. You're not even a Christian. And yet this is the way of thought that, that, that still remains for whatever reason, that, that if anything bad happens to that person, they must have done something so utterly wicked. Pat Robertson, after Haiti had had all of those horrible earthquakes, all of those casualties, he goes on the air and says it's because they are in bed with Satan and they are into black magic and voodoo. That's the reason why all of these people now are dead. Actually, that's the reason why so many people want nothing to do with God because of crap like this. Something bad happened, it's because automatically because they have sinned and they have done these horrible things. That's not the case, as we know. If that were the case, every single one of us would be blind and deaf and, you know, and have a demon inside of us or something. Well, in John chapter 9, Jesus meets yet another man who is blind. In this case, he was born blind. But he's asked a question by his apostles. John chapter 9, verse 2 says, it says that they, they see a man blind from birth. And so his disciples ask, Rabbi, who sinned? 
Was it this man himself? Or was it his mom and dad that he would be born blind? And so Jesus answers, and, and really notice how he answers this question. He says, it was neither this man who had sinned nor his parents who sinned, but here is the reason why he's blind, he says. It was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. This is the reason why so often there is adversity within us. I think back to what Moses says. God, send somebody else. I am slow of speech and tongue. God says, Moses, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him blind or deaf? Is it not I, the Lord? God has a purpose for this. And that purpose so often is not because we have done something horrible, but it's because God wants an opportunity down the line to, to really showcase his power and to give us a story that we can tell people for the rest of our lives. This was me, but now because of God, I can see. I can walk, really whatever it might be. This is where this blind man is at the time, though, in our text in Mark chapter 8. He's blind. And for a long time, I used to think that, that all a blind person sees is just nothing but, but black. And that's actually not exactly true. And yet I heard a blind person just last week who had described it very interesting. He said, if you close one eye, what you see in that other eye is really what we see. It's, it's just nothingness. It's not even a black fog, but, but all that we, we are seeing is absolute nothingness. And so this man is waiting, and he is waiting, and he is waiting for a remedy to his blindness. And then Jesus arrives in his life. And yet I find it very interesting here, though, in Mark 8, it's very unusual compared to, to almost all the other instances as Jesus heals somebody. Really what we notice first is that on this occasion, it's not a blind man coming to Jesus saying, heal me, but rather it's his friends who are asking. What we see is it is not the blind man who is asking Jesus, but rather it is his friends. I find that interesting. And yet also interesting is that unlike so many times where Jesus heals somebody, Jesus doesn't stand there, right there, where they are and heal them. But rather, what he does is, is he takes this man by, by his hand. He guides him out of the city, and then privately, he performs his miracle. Now, it could be because Jesus is not wanting, when his eyes open up, he doesn't want it to be in the city. He wants it to be in a scenic place, perhaps. Maybe, maybe not. And yet I find that very interesting. As I said a moment ago, also interesting is that unlike just about anywhere else, Jesus heals him by, by him spitting on his eyes, directly on his eyes. I find that interesting. And he lays hold of his eyes. And then lastly, we see that it's also unusual because as he heals this man, it is a gradual healing. In other words, it doesn't exactly happen instantaneously as it almost always does. I don't know if the Wi-Fi is, you know, cutting out as he is trying to heal him. You know, it's buffering somehow. I don't know if he's doing this because, really, it seems like, like this blind man has no idea who Jesus is yet. Maybe Jesus wants to, to guide him by the hand. 
walk with him a little bit, gradually heal his, his vision about halfway, and then really bring it full picture so that he can strengthen his faith as they go along. And yet regardless, once Jesus lays his hands on his eyes, Jesus then asks him a question. He asks him if he sees anything. And his response, it is very interesting, where he says that, I see men walking around as if they were trees. It seems like he has had vision before because he, he has a concept of what trees might look like. And yet Jesus then places his hands on his eyes once more. And then it's like this glinting kaleidoscope of haze begins registering in his eyes. As he stands there with Jesus, it's like he can see shapes and pigmentations and textures and rays of light slowly coming into focus. And then eventually, once this kaleidoscopic haze continues in his eyes, then his eyes blossom. And these once completely blinded eyes now open up once more. And they can now see in a clear way. And yet, I think what is most remarkable in our text is not even how Jesus heals him. But notice in verse 25 how it says that this man does not see people or the world or Jesus himself clearly until he looks at Jesus intently. Intently is the word that shows up in verse 25. Then again, he laid his hands on his eyes and he looked intently and then he was restored. And he began to see everything in a clear way. And I love that word intently. One place that I remember intently making an appearance in Scripture is when Christ has, has, has risen from the dead. And the book of Acts opens up as Jesus ascends into heaven after his resurrection. And it says that it says the apostles looked intently into the heavens as Jesus had been carried up into the sky. What that word means, as it's used there in Acts, is to gaze upon something. It means that you are so enthralled, so mesmerized at what you're looking at, everything else around you seems to just go away. And the only thing that, that, that your eyes and that your, your um, focus is latched on is, is just one thing that is there before your eyes. This is what this man does, in a sense, with him. And I tried, I mean... I spent the week trying to, to think of a perfect way to illustrate what it means to, to look intently at something. And last night I realized that the answer was, was really right before my eyes. We have a dog whose name is Mika. She is a black lassie. And she, her most favorite thing in the world is, is eating popcorn. Anytime I have popcorn, she just goes crazy. And notice her face as I hold the popcorn up. And then as she makes a move forward, she is not blinking. Notice, she's not blinking. Her eyes are latched on that kernel of popcorn. Then as it comes down, she catches that sucker in her mouth. This is what it means to look intently. This is what this blind man does. This is what the apostles did as Jesus ascended. I mean, just look at that, at that um, Face. This is what intentness looks like. 
And so the blind man now sees. His days of being blind now are also a thing of the past. And yet it seems like Scripture always has a twist if you look hard enough. Here's where this gets very interesting. After Jesus has has healed this, this, this man of his blindness, a closer look reveals that he was not the only blind man who was there with Jesus. As we also see earlier on in this very same, same chapter and in the same context, Jesus has just dealt with, with scribes and Pharisees. And Pharisees are the guys who are always looking like this stone-faced, always looking for a confrontation, somebody to correct so that they can feel superior to them in a religious way. And I, I learn a lot from scribes and Pharisees because I am a lot like them sometimes. When we think about the Pharisees, we know that the Pharisees thought that they could see. They thought that they had perfect 2020 spiritual vision. They considered their, their own selves as guides to the blind in a religious way in this world. All of these religiously blind people stumbling around in the dark. And yet as Jesus comes along, Jesus exposes that, that spiritually they, they were even more blind than this man had been in a physical sense. Later on in Matthew chapter 23, Jesus is pronouncing his famous woes upon scribes and Pharisees. And five different times, in just maybe three or four verses, Jesus calls them blind five different times. He calls them blind guides, blind men, blind fools, and blind Pharisees. When they looked at their own selves, what they saw was, was men who had this infallible knowledge of the scriptures. They all that they could see was, was the elite. And yet when they looked at tax collectors, at prostitutes, at lepers, at women who had the issue of blood, they did not see their um, fellow human beings or their neighbors or their law-breaking counterparts. What they saw was the scum of the earth. A person who was so insidious and so wicked and so, so vile that they deserved to no longer be referred to by their own name, but, but forevermore in the name of sinner. Squinting all that they could see in their fellow man was just a bunch of trees walking around. And as Jesus comes along, he begins sharing meals with those very same people. He starts calling these very people his personal friends. Here, here's Jesus reaching out and touching the untouchable leper, healing blind guys on the Sabbath, standing there openly conversing with a reviled Samaritan woman who, by the way, had been on her sixth man at the time, not even her husband. And then he started saying things publicly in the temple like, like these scribes and Pharisees that the tax collectors and the prostitutes were, were in fact entering into God's kingdom and doing so ahead of them. And I mean, these guys were, were spitting angry. These guys were filled with blind rage at what Jesus was doing, bringing his kingdom into this world. And the tragedy is, with, with, with so many Pharisees, not all of them, 
And yet the tragedy is, with, with many of those clergymen of that time, is that before Jesus could take their hand and guide them out of the city metaphorically, they led him out of the city with a crossbeam on his back. Before Jesus ever got a chance to, to reach out and to touch their eyes and to spit on their eyes metaphorically so that they could spiritually see, they spat in his face so that he could die. Before Jesus ever got, got his chance to reach out his hands and to touch their eyes, they balled up their, their fist and they disfigured his face. And so what we see with these men, even at the crucifixion, we know Jesus rose from the dead, but wink, wink, it never happened because we don't want to lose face here. I mean, this right here is a blind world right here. This is a sad sad world, a blind fool stumbling around in the dark, knowing and accepting that they are stumbling around in the dark. I mentioned John 9 a moment ago as Jesus heals a man who has been born blind. And you would think that, that all of these men would be jumping up and down, praising God with everybody else. And yet instead what we see is all of these Pharisees standing there, arms folded, scowl on their face, arguing with this man who has just been healed, trying to get him to confront or to contradict what he had already said so that they could accuse him of lying about Jesus healing him. Ultimately, they, they excommunicate him out of the temple. And yet, notice what happens later on, though. As Jesus meets up with this guy, this is what he says, John chapter 9, and at the very end of that chapter, or, or of that section, as it speaks about him, it says in John 9, I believe it's in verse 39, he says that, For judgment I came into this world, so that those who do not see might see, and that those who see may become blind. Those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said to him, We are not blind too, are we? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say, We see, he says that your sin remains. In other words, he says that because you think that you are so above everybody else, because you thought that you were already well long before the great physician already got here, you guys are so much worse in your blindness than this man had ever been in his life. These Pharisees are the most blind among the people, but it's not just them. Because what we see earlier on in our text is that it's also his 12 disciples who are blind. Because what's interesting is, as Jesus heals this man in Mark chapter 8, it comes right after Jesus has just fed over 4,000 people, 4,000 men, plus women and children. And as we know, what he did shortly before then is he, he had fed 5,000 men plus, plus women and children miraculously. I mean, out of thin air, Jesus fed two enormous multitudes. And just before our text, this is what goes down between Jesus and his apostles. As they began discussing with one another a fact that they had no bread... And Jesus is like, you would have thought that after I fed 5,000 plus people, 
out of nothing, and then 4,000 people, that you would think that I might be able to provide for just 12 of you. And so Jesus, aware of what they're saying, said to them, why do you discuss the fact that you have no bread? Do you not, notice, see or understand? Do you have a hardened heart, having eyes, but you do not see? And having ears, but you do not hear? And do you not remember when I broke those five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls had been left over? And they say, 12, Lord. And then when I broke seven for the 4,000, how many large basketfuls of broken pieces did you pick up then? And they said to him, seven. And then he asked them a question that I think he could ask all of us sometimes, oftentimes. When he says, do you not yet understand? And I know I can look at this and say, I mean, I can look down on the apostles if I wanted to, but I'm not going to because I, I, I really do the same thing sometimes. I mean, all the times God has provided for seemingly out of nowhere, where it's so obvious that the only way that this happened, this is no coincidence. This is because God has provided for me. I was at seminary quite a number of years ago. And, and I was living on, on a church support, which, which was not much. But nobody but me knew this. I needed $830 that month to make rent. And the month before, all I got was just a couple hundred dollars. I thought, man, I'm not going to be able to make rent here. But I get the envelope a month later, and I say, God, before I open this up, if there's enough money in here for me to make rent, I praise you and I trust in you. If there is $20 in this envelope and I do not make rent and I get evicted out of the, the apartment, I praise you and I rely on you fully. I open up the envelope up. I have a check for $830 to a T. That's not a coincidence. When we were at another church later on, as a lot of young evangelists experience, you're not exactly made of money. And early on in my ministry, we had a couple of weeks where, where we didn't have enough to go to the store and buy food. And the anxiety rises up, God, okay. <laughs> but nevertheless, if we're able to eat this week, Lord, we love you and we trust in you. Or if we have to starve this week, God, we love you and we trust in you. And both times, nine months apart, there was a woman who was a visitor at this church who just came out of nowhere. Never met her before in my life. She didn't know us. She had no idea that, that I, I didn't have enough money to um, have food that week. She just walks right up to me, hands me a $100 bill, both times. And I never saw her again after that. Never had that need ever again after that. You would think that, that after God has provided for me that overtly, that I would never have any anxiety, where are we going to eat? But I found a way to do it. A lot of times, once the car has, has stopped working, and there's car problems, and, 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 and money's running low, God, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? What are we going to do? I think I can hear Jesus saying to me, do you not yet understand that check for $830, 
That woman who just came in off the street gave you, of all people, a $100 bill twice, nine months apart. Don't you understand yet, David? And at times I don't. And yet as a church, we can even be blind like this. In Revelation, we read about a church at Laodicea who, who had thought, we, we are wealthy and we are well-doing. God says, you can say that all day long, but, but actually what you are is you are blind, he says. And I think about Helen Keller, who, who is not just blind, but also deaf. And she said something very profound. She said, the only thing worse than being blind is having sight, but not having vision. And so often it's those who are the very richest who we think have it most well off, but, but in reality they are the very poorest among us. And it's the ones who we actually think have it worse, who can't see, who can actually see more than, than all the rest of us combined. See, we are forever blind until we strain to look upon Jesus intently, with all of our hearts. And so maybe the enduring image for us this week is going back to that image in Mark as Jesus takes a blind man by his hand and they slowly walk out of the city just before he makes him see. And I bring that up because I believe that there is a city that Jesus wants to guide every single one of us out from this morning, ways that, that we are blind. It might be that, that, that our, our relationship with God is not what it should be because we are blinded by, by legalism as the Pharisees were. You know, where we are, are religious people, but we're not spiritual people. Or maybe for you, that city where, where you're blind at this morning is having a shattered self-esteem thinking that, that I'm really not that important to God. Maybe it is that, that you have been unloving in your life, unforgiving. And yet regardless of where we are blind, Jesus might guide us by the hand. And yet really what, what determines whether we will ever see and have sight again in those ways is that we must want to be delivered from those things. We must look intently into the face of Jesus. You see, at first, when we look at the world, all that we will be able to ever see are just these hazy shapes of people who are so evil and wicked. All that we will be able to, to, to distinguish are our skin pigmentations, our political persuasions. When we look at the church at first, all that we are going to ever recognize is just a cathedral or attendance charts on the wall, or suits and fancy dresses, some hourly smorgasbord of mechanical rituals that take place in a building. When we eat the bread and drink the cup at first, all that we will be able to see is a tiny little speck of bread and a shot glass of grape juice. At first, when we open up God's word, all that we will be able to recognize are these ancient black and red words on a page. And yet, if we permit him to, to lead us from out of those places where we are blind, 
And if we permit him, and if we look intently, if we will, will dare to do so, we will no longer see God or see our fellow man or see the church like a bunch of trees walking around in this world. But rather, our eyes are going to be open to this brand new world that we never even knew existed. Where it's like, this is what the world looks like. We will look into the faces of people who we used to judge. And now we will see our own faces, who we used to be before we came to Jesus. And worship will become the greatest joy of our existence when we have eyes no longer blinded. Here's how we do it, brothers and sisters. As the Hebrew writer speaks about all of those great faithful people, he says, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Here is how we do it, fixing our eyes on Jesus, looking intently on the author and the perfecter of the faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the Father in heaven. Where are we blind here this morning. I'd like to go to God in prayer.